Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 30th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones are with us today. Hello to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Hugh. Before we start, I did want to mention that Christmas is not far off now, and it has become traditional at this time of year. We will be doing a special Ask Me Anything podcast with the politics team. Every question, no matter how outre or personally intrusive it is, will at least be considered by our experts, uh, fueled by mince pies and maybe even something stronger. All you have to do is send your question by email to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Questions sent as an audio file will be particularly welcome and you may even be given preference as we do love to hear your dulcet tones. So that's politicspodcast at irishtimes.com and you'll need to get your questions in as soon as you can. Vote early and vote often. Now, we are less than two weeks away from an event which is unprecedented in Irish political history and pretty rare internationally as far as I know as well. Under the terms of the Programme for Government agreed two and a half years ago. Milo Martin is going to step down as Taoiseach and Leo Varadkar will take over the role. Jen, how's the big switch going to work and, and what is going on behind the scenes of all this political choreography? Yeah, so like we've talked about this a couple of times in the podcast uh, over the year because it is kind of a seismic occasion in terms of it's the first time we've had a rotating Taoiseach arrangements the first time this has happened, so it is un- unprecedented. Um, however, all of our talk before has not been but mere speculation. Um, it's a bit different this time because the talks, actual um, conversations between the coalition party leaders, from my information, start today, effectively. Um, and uh, I understand they'll be remotely over Edgar's way on a trade mission. Um, and there was a post-cabinet uh, press conference yesterday evening, as there is after after every cabinet meeting, every Tuesday or Wednesday. And we were asking the three um, government spokespeople, you know, what's happening. And they were kind of intimating that there will be conversations and they'll probably be held remotely this week because Leo Varker is away. Um, it was kind of an interesting moment, actually, yesterday at the post-cabinet briefing where the government press secretary and the deputy government press secretary representing Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael we're talking about how they're going to start these talks and, you know, there's a huge interest in in the reshuffle and, and, and how it's all going to play out. And I don't know which one of them said it's like, oh, I, you know, the two leaders will be talking to each other. And I suppose, you know, like Eamon Ryan and Eamon Ryan's spokesman just kind of grimaced and said, oh, but I hope so. You know, but I think like the, uh, one thing that I did pick up on separate to that just kind of internally is there is a bit of tension because... I think that there, Michal Martin has really relished the role of, of Taoiseach and that he, he kind of grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and ran with it. I mean, you can disagree with his policies, you can dislike him as a personality, whatever your personal viewpoint is. But from watching him over the last two and a half years, I have to say he has brought like a lot of energy to the role. He has really gone for it. Um, I've actually don't think I've ever done as many doorsteps or press conferences with Taoiseach ever. Um, so he's really kind of put himself out there. I think he's enjoyed the role. And I could see it in his face a little bit yesterday during leaders' questions. He looked a little bit, he, firstly, he looked exhausted. And secondly, I can tell that he's not relishing the prospect of giving up the top office. Um, so there is the natural tension that will come with the switchover because the power has shifted now 
to Fine Gael or is shifting to Fine Gael. And now they hold the cards. They decide who's going to be the minister. They decide, um, you know, they lead the way in the policy and, and, and Fianna Fáil are now going to have to take the second position. You can see kind of that's not something they're particularly relishing, but it's the agreement they made and they'll stick to it. So I'd say what you'll see now over the next couple of days is that speculation turning into something a little bit more solid around who is going where and whether there will be a major change, because we, by all intents and purposes, there might not be. Jack, I'm a little unclear exactly what's what's in the agreement, apart from the, the rotation of the Taoiseach himself. We gather the Minister for Finance job is going to change as well. Is that in the agreement or is that some kind of verbal thing? Uh, no, so it's not in the programme for government. The, the only thing the programme for government says is that the, the leaders of uh, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil will switch positions at the midway point, um, one becoming Taoiseach and the other becoming Tánaiste. Um, the reason that the Minister for Finance position is switching is uh, basically a kind of unwritten or, or verbal agreement between the parties, which at its core, I suppose, um, acknowledges the political reality that if you were to have the uh, Office of the Minister for Finance and the Taoiseach's office occupied by um the same party, i.e. Fine Gael, at the same time, it would be too much of a concentration of, of power in what are, I suppose, outwardly or nominally, the two um, most important kind of briefs. Um, so that is going to that is going to change the, the the handover itself. The, the choreography underpinning that was slightly complicated by the contortions that we put ourselves through um, to try and secure and retain the uh, presidency of, of the Eurogroup, which in, an ultimately successful maneuver. Um, so we will see uh, Pascal Donoghue uh, almost certainly um, ascending to a second term uh, as president of the Eurogroup, but from the position of Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, the upshot of which means that there will be two two Irish ministers on Eurogroup, one of whom will be president and the other of whom will be the Minister of Finance and representative of Ireland on Eurogroup. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, it's all uh, to be determined, uh, really, the extent of the cabinet reshuffle. Um, all the indications are that we shouldn't expect to see anything really uh, major or profound. Um, the big variable is where the Taoiseach decides to go. Under the uh, terms of the agreement, again, not explicitly spelled out in the Programme for Government, but as I understand it, a gentleman's agreement, um, that uh, when Leo Varadkar exited Taoiseach's and became Taoiseach, he had his pick of portfolio and the same privilege will apply to, to Michal Martin. So everything will kind of flow to an extent from where he wants to go. The obvious, the, the minimus kind of uh, interference, uh, the move would be for him just to swap into the Department of Enterprise, which Leo Varadkar will vacate to become Taoiseach again. Um, and a straight swap would necessitate no further changes. Uh, the, the horse sense or the conventional wisdom is that he won't do that, that he may go to the Department of Further and Higher Education, which raised the question of where to put Simon Harris. Uh, I have encountered in, in recent months, although not in recent weeks, some pushback from government buildings on that, suggesting that um, that would suit perhaps Simon Harris, but the teacher may not be particularly into it. Um, so most smart money is on him going to the Department of Foreign Affairs, um, which raises the question of where you put Simon Coveney. Now, there are so many kind of different permutations arising from this. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to articulate them all briefly, but um, let, let, I mean, it's, it's sufficient to say that, you know, aside from the moves that will be occasioned by the Taoiseach um, shifting and then potentially a change in the, in the Department of Health, um, we're not expecting a massive reorganisation of deck chairs on the Titanic in, amongst the senior ranks anyway of cabinet ministers. Because, and this may be a very nerdy question, but this can sometimes be a nerdy podcast, Jen, this is technically a new government, isn't it? You know, previously in the history of the state, 
when a Taoiseach handed in his, you know, went to the Oris and Uttar and handed in his, his resignation, it was always a him. It was on the basis of having uh, having dissolved the Dáil or lost the confidence of the Dáil or lost the confidence of his own party and uh, and then a new government being formed either through an election or, or through a handover. So this is essentially the same thing. Everybody becomes a minister in a new government, don't they? Is that constitutionally the the position? That's right, yeah. So it's an unusual situation in that it is a change, but it is pretty much the exact same uh, bar switch over in, in, in the parties. Um, so be it is a new government because what, what you'll see now on Saturday the 17th, which is when the switchover happens, is now forgive me if I make a bags of this, but I, my understanding of the running order is that the Taoiseach, current Taoiseach, Michal Martin goes into the Dáil. He resigns effectively as Taoiseach goes to the Oris, um, he comes back. Then there's a vote for Leo Varadkar to become Taoiseach. I'd say you'll probably see nominations. You will see nominations from other parties. You know, Sinn Féin will put Mary Lou Macdonald forward and argue it's time for change, actual change, etc., etc. Um, and then Leo Varadkar will be, we'll have the numbers, he'll be voted in as Taoiseach. Then he will name his cabinet. Then they will go to the Oris to get their seals of office. It's going to be a long day, Um but of course, it is a new government. You know, it's a new cabinet. It's Finnegan led. It's Finnegan led government, effectively, even though it is a, a, a partnership of equals, which they described in the program for government. Um, so I think you could almost write, to be honest with you, the script of what will happen that day. Um, and you can all you can already hear kind of Sinn Fein saying, you know, this is more of the same, and people want change, and we want an election now. But. I'd just be interested to see kind of, it's been built up so much all year, you know, the big switchover. I just wonder on the day, will it just be a bit like, all right, grand, let's all head off for Christmas now, do you know, that way. But no, it is now, in fairness, I'm not trying to downplay it. It, it, is, uh, it is a big event. And obviously, on a personal level, like a very proud day for Leo Varadkar and his family. But to the extent of what change actually happens in terms of the Irish political landscape, I just don't know. And I mean, there is always the potential for slip-ups here, isn't there? Because any, I mean, the, the Irish political system doesn't go in for cabinet reshuffles every six months like other like other systems do, partly because of their potential to cause anarchy amongst uh, amongst the ranks. So, are we anticipating, for example, changes among ministers of state from either party? Yeah. Are we anticipating any changes at all in the positions of the green ministers? Are they no. going to remain exactly the same? I mean, surely two and a half years of experience perhaps might teach the government that there might some adjustments might be required? Oh, there will be adjustments. I mean, my understanding of what's happening in the Green Party is that they're all going to stay in the same positions. Um, this was kind of made clear a little bit earlier in the year. Um, you know, we were kind of digging around and we were told this: there's no plan for changes in the Green Benches. And I, to the best of my understanding, that continues to be the situation. I think you will see a shake-up on the junior benches. That's probably actually where you'll see the biggest shake-up. I think that's the area where they have the most latitude to change things up without causing massive upset, the kind that you describe. Um, and it also, you know, I remember, I think it was this time last year, God, that year has flown, but there was a Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting and Leo Varadkar made some comment to the effect of time to pull up your, you know, socks. Um, there's a big change coming in a year. Let's see who stands, who steps up to the plate. And it was kind of a message to people who are aspiring to cabinet in the future that if they want to make that step, if they're not on the junior benches, this is their time to put themselves forward in the media to kind of propose policy, to be seen to be doing the work. Um, and that's all been happening behind the scenes. And just separately to that, the other aspect is, of course, that, you know, all of these senior politicians, of the ministers, um, they all have a lot of advisors around them. All of these advisors are very tetchy right now 
about questions around the reshuffle because, of course, they're wondering, are they going to lose their job, you know? Um, so the ministers are touchy. Um, when questions come up at about press conferences, you know, I think Charlie McConnell was asked about agriculture maybe shifting away to Fine Gael, And I think he made a, co- a comment yesterday. Well, that's the first I've heard of it. Um, but the fact of the matter is when... Uh, December 17th comes around, it could be the first many of them have heard about it. Um, and I think a lot of them will be kept in the dark up until the last minute. I just wonder about the shape of the departments, uh, Jack. I mean, for example, you look at somebody like Roderick O'Connor, the Green Minister, who has a very broad and very troublesome portfolio. And God knows, has had a couple of tough years of it. I mean, does it make sense just for political reasons to keep that department as broad as it is, given the challenges that it's going to continue to face, which may get worse? I think logistically, uh, it's it's kind of doing the work of of several government departments at this stage, and there's a few things to unpick there. Um, first of all, in some ways, I think it's a bit of an indictment of Roderick O'Gorman. Um, we had this a little bit during COVID, where it seemed that like every single COVID or COVID adjacent policy intervention ended up with the Department of Health, which is its logical home. But when you have a kind of all of government or whole of government uh, policy response to something, it would make sense to to kind of share the burden around. And you had other departments and other ministers who were more politically skillful in avoiding the COVID workload and, you know, concentrating on their policy briefs. So like, for example, something like mandatory hotel quarantine would have kind of feasibly rested to a large extent in the Department of Transport and maybe even the Department of Tourism, but it, it, it ended up all with the Department of Health. And people discussing that at the time, I think, including on this podcast, made the observation that, you know, part of that was a function of Stephen Donnelly's um, perhaps lack of skill in avoiding that, in, in, in avoiding the extra workload that was coming his way. And and to an extent, I think the same can be said uh, about Roderick O'Gorman, where you have a huge... Um, perhaps not to the same extent as the pandemic, but certainly um, a policy challenge which is consuming a lot of the political energies and attentions of the state writ large and is certainly kind of novel and, and a threshold issue and that we're having to accommodate 60,000 plus um, refugees from Ukraine and 10,000 plus uh, people seeking international protection from elsewhere. So it's a big, massive policy challenge that requires both a short-term response, which would properly rest within the Department of Integration, reconstituted as it was uh, following the, the formation of this government, and um, which is Roderick O'Gorman's department. But also, you know, you could make the very strong argument that the Department of Justice could and should be lending the shoulder to the wheel a little bit more, has a historical relationship with uh, the function of integration, which it used to be responsible for, and obviously is responsible for kind of, you know, quote unquote, border security. And certainly that has been, the observation has been made to me that the Department of Housing could be doing more on the medium term uh, solutions to these problems because uh, the, the the policy response, not to be unkind so far, has effectively, you know, kind of been like going on booking.com and reserving 60,000 hotel rooms around the country. You know, that that's kind of, in some ways, the be-all and end-all of it. And we don't seem to have developed or certainly deployed any kind of more medium-term response. So um, that's the kind of, the, the, the vista that faces Roderick O'Gorman. And while I think he has earned plaudits and admiration around government for the fact that he's kind of thrown himself into it, I think there is also a, a potential for criticism there as well, just on the fact that he hasn't managed to effectively shimmy it. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, perhaps more uh, dexterous uh, political, more politically dexterous ministers like Dara Bryan have um, and managed to keep their own focus and their own resources and energies more narrowly um, on the kind of chronic policy challenge of, of, of the housing crisis. So I think that may change. I think there's a recognition of that. I don't think that 
you're likely to see a formal kind of a shifting of responsibilities away from the Department of Children Integration and, you know, umpteen other things it's responsible for. But I think what you're likely to see, and, and we see some reporting on this in our sister paper, the Irish Examiner this morning, is, um, you know, extra functions being assigned to junior ministers. Now, I don't think they have the scope to to create more junior ministries as such, but you might see, for example, um, Anne Rabbit, whose role uh, was originally in the Department of Health and is shifting over to the Department of Children, and perhaps being given more responsibility for that integration function, just to kind of take something off Roderick O'Gorman's desk, who is obviously responsible for not only the refugee response, but, you know, dozens of other really complex and vexed uh, policy issues like, you know, ending direct provision, uh, improving the lot of, of, of parents around the country facing childcare bills, um, and, you know, you, you name it, it, it's on his desk, it seems. So I think you may see some, something like that. And then just in relation to the um, the... The, the refugee issue and the housing of asylum seekers uh, and of Ukrainian refugees, Jen. I mean, you've been, uh, I know you guys were talking a lot about this last week when I was away and about the protests in in East Wall, but you, you've been looking at it in, in some depth over the last week or so, uh, not just in East Wall. I mean, you've been looking at other parts around the country where these these problems or these challenges are, are perhaps further advanced or further down the road. Yeah, um, and we, we did talk about it a bit last week. I think what I kind of set out to do in the piece which ran at the weekend was to look at, because what we heard basically over the last couple of weeks is, you know, people are concerned with no actual kind of detail about what people were concerned about. Are these concerns genuine? Are they not? Where, you know, where are they coming from effectively? And that's what I set to find out. And one kind of interesting case study, I suppose, is the wrong phrase, but I'll, I'll use it. Um, is in Dublin Midwest. It's in Clondalk and it was an empty uh, office block on the Monastery Road. It's called Dulcane House. Um, and it was last month, basically. So this kind of happened, this is basically a couple of weeks ahead of East Wall um, in terms of how it all played out. There were people in the area, residents in the area and politicians were told that I think it was around 180 asylum seekers would be moved into this empty office block. And... Um, there was a lot of controversy in the area because residents and local politicians, including Sinn Féin's Mark Ward, kind of independent councillors in the area, say that they weren't told until the very last minute and that there wasn't enough um, consultation, I suppose. Um, and it's pretty much exactly this. Well, it's not exactly the same, but it's very similar to, to the East Wall situation. And I spoke to an independent councillor out that way called Francis Timmons. Um, now, he was saying that he has received an awful lot of um, what he described as racist messages. And he said that he totally discards those. He doesn't engage with those. But he said, on the other hand, he did receive a lot of questions from residents who genuinely wanted to know how this was going to work, um, how this is going to integrate with local services. Because, you know, when you bring a large amount of refugees into any community, of course, they're going to need access to local services. And that could be anything from local GP services to school places. School places is one area where there'd be particular pressures around around the country. Um, and, you know, he one of the really interesting things he said was the question that kept coming up was, why are all these single men coming here? And in East Wall, you could see when these, uh, when there were single men, uh, international protection applicants going into the uh, ESB building, there were people outside with their phones, recording them and kind of shouting, um, stuff at them, you know, one man called them scum of the earth. Another woman said, out, 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 you know, we'll get you out, go back to your country, go fight for your country, effectively. Um, and this is coming up in different communities, you know, why are there single men here? And he said, he 
asked these questions and he met the owner of the, or the, the company that's running the block effectively and managing the services. And he said, there's a, there's a couple of different reasons. They could be a member of an LGBT community where, you know, they could live in a country where they've been persecuted. Um, there could be war in their country. Um, some of their marriages could have broke down. Some of their wives could be over here, also displaced because of war. But as we know, there are, are different accommodation options around the country that are just for women and children. And they could be coming over to be reunited with their family. And he kind of gave a, a breakdown of where these men were from, from Georgia, Somalia, Sierra Leone, Algeria and Ukraine, of course. Um, so the interesting thing, I think, was he said once he'd gone and got all the answers to the questions, including services, including what was happening, why they were there, etc., etc., the vast majority of people were happy enough. He said he still got a lot of racist stuff, which he blocked out and blocked people on social media. And um, people were saying, you know, they're going to cause a lot of problems in the community in terms of antisocial behaviour in the town of Clondalkin. He went to the guards in Clondalkin and asked them, had there been any problems? And they said, absolutely none. Um, and he basically said, there's nothing to hide here. Um, it's just an interesting kind of counter to what's to what's happening in, in Eastwall. And those protests are continuing in Eastwall. And the question is, and the question was, what are the government going to do about it? Are they just going to ignore it and, you know, pretend that it's not happening? Are they going to address it? And if so, how? And it seems to me that what they're planning to do is to redirect resources from people who are day to day trying to find accommodation for people who are coming in every single day. Some resources to maybe a new unit or a new section of the department that will specifically deal with talking to communities and also countering disinformation coming from actors on the far right. Now, some people have mentioned the far left, but I think realistically it's the far right. And and then there's the question of, it's a different question really, but about the impact that that has on our politics next year and the year after and whether immigration finally becomes a big issue, um, which politicians fare well. I think it's a it's a subject which you're going to be continuing to discuss right throughout 2023 myself. We are going to leave it there for a moment, though. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back to the podcast. Jack and Jen are still here. Jack, uh, you won you won the lottery last week. You you got to go to Athlone for the Green Party conference, uh, the Ardesh. Uh, how was it? Yes, having missed out on the chance to go to Athlone for the Fine Gael Ardesh, I went down to the uh, Green Party uh, convention, as they call it. Um, and it was it was fine, you know. I mean, they seem to be a party that's uh, in the large part fairly fairly at peace with itself. Um, and its decision to go into government, Eamon Ryan was. Um, was making fairly bullish predictions, it must be said, about uh, the the party's um, likely performance or his targeted performance in the next uh, local and European elections. He was he was um, initially talking about, but you know there would presumably be some read across to the general election. He was talking about increasing their. He was talking about effectively more than doubling their. Uh, their representation of councillors from 45 to 100. And he said he thinks that one in 10 uh, voters could vote green. Now, I'm not sure whether he means, you know, there'll be 10% of first preference votes or, you know, after transfers. And, you know, does he talk, does he mean when he says vote green, does he mean green politics or does he mean the Green Party? But nonetheless, it was a fairly um, a fairly uh, bullish statement of intent. Or does he mean uh, that 10% of the population are potential green voters? And they have potential to green voters, exactly. And he yeah. thinks that potentially, you know, they, they could be converted to, to giving a high preference to to the Green Party, and he was also saying that he, he doesn't think that the, the old truism about smaller parties suffering in, in government is necessarily going to hold at uh, this time. He would say that, wouldn't he? You know, and I think that, you know, there is um, only one way to really find out whether he's right or not, and that is to hold the elections, and we'll, we'll see then. But I suppose that, you know, in, in the round, save for um, the kind of 
cranky constituency that exists within every party. Um, it seemed to be, as I say, you know, not. It, it, it seemed to be a fairly harmonious event. Um, fairly tightly stage stage managed, very much on brand. There were vegetarian sandwiches only uh, at, at offered at the lunch on Saturday, and I spotted one member of the party, uh, one delegate going around turning down the the thermostats from twenty three to nineteen degrees. Um, saying they thought that everyone got the memo uh, on uh, for, for 19. I mean, the most interesting thing that I went to really, and I'm not even sure whether journalists were supposed to be at this, was a kind of fringe event. And and, and, and we, we have these at, at party conventions in the UK more where, you know, the, the, the fringe of any given party is given kind of license to hold events that kind of jar with the... Um, with the leadership's adopted position on something and they're seen as a kind of a, a locus for, for a dissent within the party. This one was on CETA, the transatlantic trade deal between the EU and, and Canada. And the reason, of course, that's particularly interesting, and particularly topical is that Patrick Costello, the Green Party TD for Dublin South Central, took a successful Supreme Court challenge to the government's plan to, to ratify that deal and kind of caused the, the whole ratification plan to, to be thrown into a bit of disarray. And, and, and the government has had to take a backward step from that and is reassessing how it might do that via legislation. Um, what was really interesting about it was just how, how well attended it was. Now, you know, all these things are relative. I would, I, I, I suspect there's between 40 and 60 people in the room at any one time, but there was, there was a good sense of energy there, you know, and, and there was a sense that people were kind of being certainly on this kind of wing of, of the Green Party, the just transition wing, which would be aligned with the, the constituency within the party that is critical of Eamon Ryan and, you know, favours a, a more radical approach to the climate transition and particularly a more kind of socially conscious uh, approach to the climate transi- transition that, that they feel energised by this. Um, and, you know, he was joined on stage by a couple of his legal team who, uh, as I understand it, are, are Green Party members as well. Having pops at Leo Varadkar, who is a big fan of CETA, um, you know, saying that his his pronouncements during the the case that Patrick Oslo took that you know it had no merit, and you know he hoped that the costs would follow um Costello when 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 and if he lost that you know that showed how much Leo Varadkar knew, and they were talking about as well you know their intention to put the put the pressure on party leader Eamon Ryan over this one, and um, so I think it showed that that while the Greens are. In the round, uh, certainly the kind of core of the party is 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 at peace with the decision to go into government and feels that it's making progress, um, particularly on those big moving parts, the, the climate legislation that they introduced last year and the targets, uh, the sectoral ceilings agreed this year. Um, there is this this group waiting in the long in the long grass um for the leaders, and I think that that's something that's true across the the three coalition parties, that you know, it is only natural that every political party and every party leader at any given time has a rump within their parliamentary party and within their wider membership that isn't entirely satisfied with their um, with their leadership at that given time. I think what the three parties have in common is that they're more or less in control of their parliamentary parties, heading towards the, the switchover point. Um, but what things like CETA show and what things like, you know, the the the, the the backbiting that goes on about Micheál Martin and the whole Mark McSharry affair that we had during the autumn has failed or his aborted attempt to kind of rejoin the parliamentary party is that these things still take over in the background, even though you may not be facing any immediate threat. And it's something that they have to be conscious of heading into the second part of this government um, when things may become a little bit looser for a whole variety of reasons. You know, this the, the first half of this government was, was characterised first by disarray and, you know, um, just incoherence. And then they kind of decided to hang together. And that became the, the hallmark of, of the first half of this government, a very tight relationship between the three uh, leaders and everything kind of flowing from that. And, and while there was criticism, it was 
fairly solid at, at almost all points, with the maybe the, the the slight exception of the the, the emission ceilings that were agreed just before summer. Um, and I think it it just remains to be seen whether all that will be will will be will be kept together in the second half of the government, or whether any or all of these party leaders will find themselves themselves vulnerable to to challenge from within. Yeah, I do wonder, Jen. I mean, Jack says correctly that every party has its awkward squad. But, you know, the Green Party's awkward squad was particularly awkward at the point of discussing going into coalition and, you know, a substantial number of people did leave the party. And you know, and the point should be made, you know, Patrick Costello argued against the majority of the government that CETA was unconstitutional and he was right. Uh, and that must give sucker and energy to that wing of the party. And, you know, there's also the fact that there was an extremely tight leadership contest only two years ago. So Catherine Martin, in a way, although she's very securely at the heart of government, is technically still waiting in the wings. Yeah, she is. She is. Um, And I think that's a fair enough point to make. I think if you look at the CETA issue that you mentioned there in particular, um, that's been a particularly sore point for the Greens. I remember when Patrick Costello first raised the issue, um, and of course he took an 18-month trip to the uh, to the Supreme Court, effectively, um, and has since been vindicated in, in, in a fashion. But when that all kind of came out into the open, because remember, it was just supposed to be a standard 55-minute debate, uh, and then it ended up being kicked into the long grass because it was it became very obvious it was kind of politically toxic at the time. Um, there was a massive row in the Green Party about that. You know, there were, it was, there were members of the party who were split uh, in favour of what Patrick Costello was doing and totally against it, you know, and uh, kind of there was also very tense discussions between the three party leaders. I remember that week, I think there, there was a row uh, at the meeting that they have every every Monday night. Um, and for the Green Party, you know, it's not just Patrick Costello. You know, we've also seen Patrick again and Nasa Hurrigan vote against the government in relation to the National Maternity Hospital. Um, and now we face CETA coming back onto the cards again. Uh, and this is at a time when they've just been readmitted to the party as well. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot still to play out there. And and not forgetting it, you know, the first year, particularly for the Greens, were difficult. There was a lot of councillors who left. Um, Saoirse McHugh, people like she left as well. Lorna Bogue, um, and it, I think it was difficult. I think for the Green Party, I think they know in their heart and soul that when it comes to the next election, and let's remember that in the polls, they are anywhere from. 3% to like a maximum that I've seen of around 6%. Um, I think they know that when it comes to the next election, they're going to get it in the neck um, from voters. And I think what they're focused on, and when you talk to them, you know, about how they feel the 2025 election is going to go, there's kind of a grimace almost. They're kind of not afraid, but they're ready for the backlash. And what they're trying to do in the meantime is to say, okay, let's make some, let, let's stack up a number of major legislative wins. And let's stand on those, let's stand on that basis basically when it comes around to the next time. So you'll hear them talk about, um, rightfully so, the, the climate action plan and the targets that Jack mentioned, you know, the, the legally binding um, emissions. You Definitely, we've talked about Roderick O'Gorman's workload in terms of Ukraine. Um, I think his colleagues are all very glowing when they talk about him and, and the workload and how he's managed it. Uh, on the flip side, he didn't exactly cover himself in glory during the mother and baby homes issue in relation to tapes and all of that. It was a particularly difficult time for him. Um, and I think what you'll see is them say, OK, we've, we've achieved this, we've achieved that. Um, and one of the things they were really hoping to be able to go into the next election and say was we abolished direct provision 
that the plan was to abolish that by 2024. And um, we can see over the weekend, Catherine Day, who was the head of that expert advisory group um, and who uh, wrote the original report on it, um, saying that it's not going to be, in her opinion, the timelines aren't possible anymore. So that's a major blow to them, uh, one of their biggest one of their biggest pledges. They'll come under a lot of pressure on that, I think, particularly timing-wise. Indeed. Moving on to another subject, Jack, I'm looking at the Irish Times uh, this morning uh, on, the, on the front page. Uh, Iran were knocked out of the World Cup uh, by the USA, of all people, last night, uh, and, and more disappointing news for them in the paper that uh, the Irish embassy may not reopen in Tehran as well. Uh, so a bad day for Iran. Yes, I suspect that the, um, the exit from the World Cup is likely to concentrate minds in Tehran a little more uh, then the presence or absence of uh, the Irish diplomatic contingent uh, on the ground in the Iranian capital. But it, it's an interesting Irish fold on um, on an international event, which, uh, you know, obviously uh, stems back to the the uh, the riots, really, the riots, disturbances, uh, protests that uh, happened in uh, Iran over late summer and into spring um, following the death of, of Masha Amini. Uh, a 22-year-old woman who uh, died after being arrested uh, by the um, the morality police in, in Tehran for uh, not wearing her hijab correctly. And that has, has led to, you know, various incarnations of, of protests, um, most notably at the World Cup when the um, players from the football team refused to, to sing the anthem when we saw some protests in and amongst the, 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 the crowds as well. And, and where this has kind of landed for Irish politics is... Um, in, in the plan, which has been extant for, for some years to, to reopen uh, the Irish embassy in Tehran, which was shut, I think, in 2012 as part of a cost-cutting cost, cost drive, 2010 or 2012, I can't remember. I actually went to Tehran um, with Enterprise Ireland a few years ago when they were kind of trying to um, to, to uh, reinvigorate trade trade links or explore the potential for trade links between Ireland and, and Iran. This was around the time of the, the nuclear deal. Um, that uh, Barack Obama struck, which latterly collapsed under under Donald Trump, and I think there's some efforts to kind of uh, reforge it now. But it was interesting, you know. It was um, I was I was working for a different paper at the time, and and you know there was a bunch of Irish kind of med tech companies mostly who were looking to export into Iran. So you know there there is that that potential there, um, and it's a fascinating place. You know, uh, Tehran is a huge and, and bustling city, and you know when you're walking around it, you can kind of feel the the vestiges of the of the the fairly kind of you know. Western style um, country that that ex- that pre existed the, the Islamic Republic obviously far from perfect um, you know anyone who has a, even a, a glancing familiarity with his, the history of Iran knows that um, the the regimes of, of the Shah were were um, brutal in many ways um, but you know it, it is it, it still feels a kind of more modern country than people might expect given the the branding of Iran um, and you see a lot of kind of young people around it's very young. Society in a very young country, and and those those are the reasons that people in in Ireland and in Enterprise Ireland wanted to kind of look at, at reforging those those trade links. But it looks to be um, becoming heavily politicised and tied up with this wider wider debate about you know links between the Iranian regime and 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 the EU and and Ireland. Um, and now within Fine Gael, there's a a camp. Um, Mary Siri Carney, the senator, uh, former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Charlie Flanagan, former Cabinet Minister Regina Doherty and former Minister of State John Paul Fielenall wrote a letter to uh, Simon Coveney urging him to, to, to stall or cancel this decision until a United Nations investigation into the into the death had happened. And, and, and then, as we reported today, there was a, a document distributed to uh, diplomats um, 
uh, accredited in Ireland by the Iranian embassy, which kind of sought to explain the Iranian side of it and, and, and did so in rather rosy and glowing and favourable terms. Um, but Jack, is that not fair enough? And God knows we're not uh, defending the killing of, of Masa Amini or indeed the other things that have happened over the last over the last several weeks there. But isn't it the job of the embassy to send out documents setting out? It is, what, it is what embassies do. I suppose that the, the, the criticism from some of those um, Fine Gael parliamentarians is that, you know, it was a particularly kind of egregious or, or almost propagandistic kind of uh, version of affairs, which, you know, um, I suppose disputed some of the kind of core, uh, some of the kind of core contentions around around her death, but also around, you know, the, the relationship between the West and, and Iran and talked about, you know, um, effectively kind of misinformation being peddled by by the, the West and, and this being used as a lever to, to undermine the regime and I and and I suppose you know just goes to to illustrate how uh, finely balanced that relationship is at any, at any given moment and I think Simon Coveney has a bit of a call here I don't think it's I don't think it's one that's really going to animate the the man on the street in in Dublin or Tehran as we said but you know I think it's something that you know there's clearly a, a rump of opposition within the parliamentary party so he has to make a decision on it, or maybe he won't. Maybe it'll be Michal Martin uh, who has to make a decision on it, and we'll have to see how the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party feel about it. Now, Jen, I, I should say our, our listeners can't hear this because this is an audio-only podcast, uh, for the moment at least anyway, but I'm looking at you. You have a beautiful Christmas tree up there behind you on November the 30th, <laughs> no less. Congratulations to you. It's one of the, one of the first Thank domestic you. Christmas trees I've seen. So obviously you're, you're fully <laughs> bought in to the, uh, to the festive spirit. Christmas is sometimes an occasion for culture wars. Um, it hasn't really been up to the past uh, in, in the past in Ireland, but a sort of a mini culture war has broken out. Ireland seems to have developed its very own uh, Ron DeSantis in the in the form of Minister for State uh, Patrick O'Donovan, who has saved Christmas, or at least has saved uh, a Dublin institution, the Living Crib, from the clutches of the Winterville supporting Green Party Lord Mayor. Yes. Firstly, my Christmas tree went up last weekend, and I would have put it up the weekend before had there not been some displeasure. Oh, that's great. I think that's brilliant. I, <laughs> I fully, fully endorse Thank that. Thank you. I know the energy. I'm dreading the ESB bill, but we all need a bit of joy in our lives. It's, don't it's we? going to look terrible um, by the 6th also, of January. That's the only thing. Oh, no, it's uh, not real. It's not real. <laughs> no, I'm not that dedicated. Um, I also have all my Christmas shopping, so you can call me a freak of I nature will. if you want. But um, I'm going to confess here, I just don't get the, the live crib situation. I just, from the very beginning, just could not understand why people were so upset. I really couldn't. I just, I thought this is just going to be one of those stories that exists over 24 hours and that'll be that. Well, how wrong was I? Maybe I should just explain for for uh, it occurs to me for for listeners, particularly ones who are overseas. Overseas, the Live Crib is a is a is a institution that's been around for not that long actually, since the mid nineteen nineties. It's been outside the Mansion House, which is the Lord Mayor's residence in Dublin, with live animals supported by the uh, by, via the Irish Farmers Association. And the current Lord Mayor, who is a member of the Green Party, um, decided that it wasn't appropriate for reasons which aren't entirely clear to me. Uh, Q uproar um, and uh, Patrick O'Donovan, uh, a member of her coalition partner party, Fine Gael, um, stepped in, and now the live crib is going to be, going to happen just a uh, hundred meters or so up the road in Stevens Green. Yeah, big fanfare yesterday. You know when it was announced the Christmas had been saved and Fine Gael had stolen the march on the Green Party, and uh, you know basically the Greens are the Grinches of the coalition allegedly, and uh, Fine Gael are there to to, to save the day. Um, I have to say the photo call looked actually really nice and I could totally understand why families would enjoy it. But 
I'm not going to lie. It's just one of those stories. I just, I, I, I just, do people, I would actually love to hear from people. Are people really exercised about it? But clearly they must be. But yeah, what's happened uh, is that Fine Gael have stepped in, Patrick O'Donovan, along with the OPW, um, for which is responsibility, and also the Irish Farmers Association, the IFA. Um, and, you know, there's going to be this live crib in Stevens Green. Um, you're not going to be able to go into the, like a complex is the wrong word. I don't know the word for it. Um, but you can look from outside the barriers, effectively. And there's lots of promises about the welfare of, of the animals. And a very interesting video from Patrick O'Donovan with very jaunty music in the background where he gives the good news. And uh, yeah, I think people could watch that for themselves. I'm not going to make any comment on it myself. I quote Jack from Patrick O'Donovan. This is about me standing up for my way of life, the people I represent, rural Ireland, farmers, and as well as that, the children of Dublin who want to see a live crib. Who could argue with that? Indeed, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a kind of mini-culture war. I mean, people give out about Christmas beginning too early. I, my main my main crib, see what I did there with this story, is <laughs> that it's an August story in December. This is one of those, this is one of those stories that kind of gets traction and, uh, and, and outsized degree of coverage when everyone is on holidays in August. It just happens to have happened in December or November, actually, more properly. Um, it's an interesting one, actually. I think I think Finnegan have kind of played a blinder here, in a funny way. Like I think that they've they've taken this thing that like is kind of innocuous, bizarre, and and eminently you know politically irrelevant when you get down to the core of it, and like they've kind of slickly developed this uh, comms operation around it, focused largely on on James Gagan, the unsuccessful candidate in uh, the Dublin Bay South uh, by-election earlier on this year and the uh, the Dublin County Councillor, Dublin City Councillor, excuse me, for Pembroke Ward, um, who was kind of front and centre of it, that, you know, he took it on and was he, he gave me a comment yesterday, actually, that, that that's kind of worth uh, reading out because it kind of shows what the Fine Gael strategy on this has been. He texted me and he said... Um, uh, Christmas is supposed to be about children. I'm delighted that an event which has been taken away from them, taken away from the children, has now been restored. There was never any credible justification to take away the live crib. The Lord Mayor should never have used Christmas, a, a Christmas tradition, to make a political statement. The ultimate irony of which is that Fine Gael have successfully weaponized this in a massive way. I was talking to one of the Greens yesterday on background because I couldn't get any Green people to talk about this, unsurprisingly, because it has been a rather anonymous de- de- defeat for them. Um, and they were saying, look, you know, Fine Gael just absolutely uh, trolled us here. It was epic trolling. And, you know, they'll they'll have ex- extracted ma- maximum kind of share of voice for this. They, made, they, they got a lot of low-hanging and cheap coverage. And also, I suspect it's probably... It's probably appealed to whatever section of the electorate is kind of, you know, either in a meaningful or just a kind of marginal way offended by this Winterville stuff, this idea that you can't say anything. And, you know, Christmas is being debased and people say winter, not Christmas. And, you know, if if they see a party which is kind of catering for that part of their political disposition, however large or small it may be, well, I doubt it does that party any any particular harm. Uh, is it a politically important story? No. Are we going to be talking about it in our uh, Ask Me Anything at Christmas? Potentially, because it's a Christmas story. Are we going to be talking about it in a year? No. I'll just offer a final observation. Don't go near the bloody uh, living crib. It's couple of old goats in it. Go to the moving crib in Parnell Square, which is really a, an icon of Irish kitsch mid-century culture. And uh, and it's free as well, I think. So yeah, stay away from the living crib. Go to the moving crib. On that note of advice, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much to Jen and Jack. Uh, this podcast is produced by Declan Conlon and our engineer is JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thank you very much for listening.